I want to begin with reflections upon the title and this term, the excellency of, of God. I was reflecting on this word excellency. This is by way of introduction to my particular topic about God being too excellent to need servants. So I want you to reflect with me for a moment on, on the term, the excellency of God. And I want to do it by asking this particular question. Why do we in conferences like this or in certain churches or sermons put forward themes like this instead of just dealing with the simple gospel? Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again, triumphant over death and hell and Satan. Why don't you just deal with the simple, glorious facts of the gospel instead of these big, broad, overarching things like the excellency of God? What's the reason for that? Now, there is a reason. It's very relevant to understanding the gospel. And I would invite you to open your Bible by way of introduction to... Second Corinthians chapter four. I confess that I cannot distinguish in my mind very clearly between the term, the excellency of God and the glory of God. And so I am taking them biblically as almost interchangeable. Read with me. Second Corinthians four verses three to six. Even if our gospel is veiled, gospel, we're talking gospel here now. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. Now, these next words are some of the most important words in my estimation in all the Bible in understanding the nature of conversion and the nature of the gospel. And they recur again in verse 6, but let's read them carefully and attend to every phrase. That they might not see the gospel, now define it for us, Paul, tell us what you mean, of the glory of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, the excellency of Christ is the gospel, or at least is an essential component of the gospel. You see that? I'm not adding any words here, except replacing the word glory with excellency. So that they might not see, this is the devil's aim, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is not preached where the glory of Christ is not exalted. And then it defines Christ, who is the image of God. So the glory of Christ is the glory of God, which is now spoken again in verse 6. But read 5 as well. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, a glorious Lord, an excellent Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give. And now he repeats these words in slightly different arrangement. He's shown in our hearts to give what? The light that corresponds with light in verse four. If you can read vertically here, you should let your eyes run up and down to link these words. Light in verse four with light in verse six. You got that? Of the knowledge, replacing of the gospel, of the glory of God, instead of the glory of Christ, in the face of Christ, instead of who is the image of God. That parallel is so rich, it would keep you for days, I believe, reflecting. But here's what I want you to see by way of introduction as to why I love the theme of this conference. Why the mission of our church is called We Exist to Spread a Passion for the Supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. We've chosen the word supremacy. Could have chosen glory. Could have chosen excellency. The reason for words like this is because in order to be faithful to a text like this and to really penetrate to the essence and bottom of the gospel that must shine in the heart of the person for them to be saved, there's got to be glory. Now, let me just draw out a, a couple of implications of this to lead into my theme. The gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's not an implication. That's a quotation. The gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ shines out of the gospel. It stands forth from the gospel. When you see the gospel for what it really is, you see glory. You see the glory of Christ. You see excellency. Here's an implication. To be saved, one must experience 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 4, 6. To be saved, one must experience 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 4, 4. That's huge. Because it means that the gospel has to be preached in such a way as to lift up the gloriousness of it. And the Holy Spirit has to work to illumine the heart. May the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ shine in your heart. Because there's no life if it doesn't shine there. And you're not saved. Now, the reason I say the excellency of God is an important theme is because I love the gospel. You say, why don't you just preach the simple gospel? This is the essence of the gospel. The excellency of Jesus radiating out through his work of a perfectly lived life, an atoning death, a triumphant resurrection is the revelation of the glory of Christ who is God. And if you don't see it as glorious, you are not born again. That's serious, and that's the gospel. 
And there are a lot of non-born again professing Christians in the churches who have no taste for the glory of God. And that's scary. No taste. No sight. Taste and see. Taste and see. We're talking a spiritual seeing. Jesus said seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. There are two seeings, folks, and there are two hearings. One is with this eyes and it saves nobody. One is with the eyes of the heart, as Paul called it in Ephesians 1.18, and it saves the soul. And you only can see with the eyes of the heart when verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 happens by grace. And you should plead with God to give it to you tonight if you don't have it. The glory of Christ in the gospel, in the cross, in the resurrection, in the perfect life of righteousness, in the ascension, in his reign and intercession for us in heaven. This story is glory and you must taste it as glory. And that's the evidence you've been wrought upon by the living God to make you his own. No taste for glory, no salvation. And you don't make that happen, God makes that happen. The reason the gospel is so cheap today, and there are so many nominal believers in our churches, is because people ask the question I began with. Why don't you just preach the simple gospel and lay aside these big, high, heavy, weighty theological themes like the excellency of God. Faith, a last implication before I move to the theme, faith is a seeing and savoring of the glory of God in the gospel. That's the meaning of saving faith. A seeing and savoring of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. My whole enterprise of Christian hedonism is an effort to make plain the spiritual seeing and savoring. And all I mean by savoring is seeing it as precious. I reckon everything is lost. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Indeed, I count all things as rubbish that I might gain Christ. That's saving faith talking. That's not any add-on to faith talking. Faith is a savoring, a treasuring, a leaning on and loving and delighting in what you've seen in the gospel. That's why there's no difficulty moving from the glorious once for all work of justification in the moment of the first twinkling of an eye of saving faith to this process of sanctification because the faith that justifies is that kind of faith and it sanctifies. You can't not be holy when you love God like that. We have so gotten saving faith wrong by making it some kind of choice to believe a doctrine 
that people scratch their heads as to why they're not being changed. They're not born again. They've never seen glory as glory. Glory is precious. Glory is a treasure. Glory is that for which you count everything as lost. They've never seen it. And therefore, we're not on our faces as a church crying out, Oh, God, come with light. Do verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 in our churches because our people don't see it. You wonder why the early church died so easily? That is, the saints died so easily? How could they sing on the way to the stake or the lion? How could they do that? Because to die is gain. That's all introduction. As to why I value the term and the reality of the excellency of God. And my, my question now, which I'll attempt to tackle in maybe 10 or 15 minutes, um, is, thank you. How do you serve God so that his excellency is magnified and not compromised in your life? We have this room is filled with servants of the Lord. And I'm, I want to I want to tell you not to be a servant tonight. And I'm basing it on chapter 17 of verse chapter 17 of Acts, verse 24. I'm sure you all heard it and saw we were where we were going. Acts 17, 25, I mean, not 24. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Therefore, beware of serving God. Beware of serving God. You can dishonor God by serving God. That's what that text says. Let me give you another one just to add on to it. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man... Came not to be served. Stop. You don't need the rest of the verse to get the point. He came not to be served. Therefore, don't compromise the meaning of the incarnation by serving Christ. He came not to be served. Don't serve him. So that needs to be heard. It needs to be wrestled with. Now, this is this is a big issue to me. I wrote a whole book to try to explain what I mean called Future Grace. And what burdened me behind that book was an ethic out there of how to serve God that has a modicum of truth behind it that makes it almost the given way of articulating service to God today, which I think is not the most God-glorifying way. Namely, the I've got different names for it. I sort of like the term the Tonto ethic, but I realize I'm 53 and probably most young people in the room don't know the Lone Ranger and Tonto and Hyo Silver and a white stallion and a black mask and a silver bullet. And that's just 50s, sorry. <laughs> but I like it because uh, 
the Lone Ranger got into this relationship with Tonto, this Indian who helped him out of so many scrapes by saving his life. And it was the ethic of the Indian tribe that he saved the life, that once a man saves your life, then you bind yourself to him and you follow him and you serve him the rest of your life, saving his life. And so the whole story, year after year in the 50s, was uh, Tonto rescuing poor Lone Ranger from all of his scrapes as he was trying to do good around the world. So you see where I'm heading. God has saved you, and now your motivation is to serve him for the rest of your life and help him. Now, nobody articulates their service of God that way, but I fear that it may come close. He gave, he gave his life for me. What, what have I given for him? Call it the debtor's ethic. That's probably the better term. God has done so much for me. And now out of gratitude, I will do and do and do for him. So you look back to what he did for you. And as you turn to the future, what you see is a God whom you are to serve. There's something profoundly wrong with that, at least in its tendency and the way it's lived out by many. And let me tell you three things that I find wrong with it and then give you an alternative. The debtor's ethic is impossible. It's not just impossible because of human limitations. It's impossible because of the way God has set up the world. What I mean is this. If you say God has been so gracious to me. He's lavished me with grace that I will now take steps of obedience by which I will pay the debt of grace that I owe him. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. And so I will now take steps to repay my debt of grace. You know why that's impossible? Because every step you take called obedience is totally dependent on more grace. And therefore, all you do with every step of obedience is go deeper into debt. And I'm not making this up. I'm basing it on 2 Corinthians 9, 8, which says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having enough of everything, you will also have grace for every good work. How do you do a good work? Grace. You cannot Pay one nickel back with obedience, because if it's genuine evangelical obedience, it is depending on more grace, which is why I call the book Future Grace, because every step you take in the next five seconds worth of future is taken in the power of grace. The next one is in the power of grace. The next one is in the power of grace. And you are going down, 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 down into glorious dependence upon more and more grace. And your debt is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger to the glory 
glory of God's grace every second of your life. So get out of your mind forever the payback mentality to God. It's impossible. That's reason number one. Reason number two. If it were possible, grace would no longer be grace, but a business transaction. If you could successfully pay the mortgage in payments of obedience, grace would be nullified, as Romans 4, 4 and 5 makes very, very clear. To him who works, his wage is reckoned not according to grace. But according to debt, but to him who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. And therefore, just like Acts 17:25 warns you not to serve, Romans 4:5 warns you not to work. Rather, it is all dependence upon grace. And what I'm calling you to tonight, if you don't know how to do it, is to find a way to serve wholly dependent on grace for every step you take. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and the giver gets the glory and therefore you must find a way to eat and drink so that you are a giver. Getter and not a giver. God's got to be the giver of grace at every moment of your life. That's reason number two. You nullify grace if you were to succeed at paying it back. And the third is implicit in the first two. If you make an attempt to live your life by the debtor's ethic, call it the gratitude ethic, call it the tonto ethic, whatever you want, this payback mentality. You will make short shrift of future grace and think only in terms of past grace. And most of the grace on which your life hangs is in the future. Now, that's a dangerous statement because I love the cross. We sing a a worship song and written by Mark Eltrogi in our church. I love the cross. I love the cross where my Savior died. I love the cross where I was justified. I love the cross. But the cross is where all my future enabling grace was bought. And I live in it for eternity by depending on it being poured out on the basis of that. So, there are texts that capture this. One of them is, is Romans 8.32. You know it. Another is Romans 5.9. Another is Romans 5.10. He who did not, past tense, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. So you walk back, you look back and you stand on that. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't spare your own son. You gave him up for me so that... Like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin took my sin, became sin for me, that I might have his righteousness. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. All my sins gone, all his righteousness mine. He who did not spare his own son, how 
shall he not now with him freely give us all things for eternity? And that's where you live. Do you trust that promise? Do you trust that promise? Taking your stand on the finished work of Christ that purchased it all and fit you as a justified person to be changed and receive it. Do you trust Him? And that's where you live. That's where you serve. Serving God so that the excellency of grace is magnified in your life. Not so that God is put in the position of a mortgage payment receiver. Now, what's the alternative ethic that I would put in its place? And I would simply point you to a couple of texts. One is Psalm 50, verses 12 to 15, maybe just verse 15. Instead of uh, our meeting God's needs, you know, if, if I were hungry, I would not ask you, the psalm says. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And here's the alternative he gives. Call on me. Call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. And you will glorify me. See the dynamic? You want to get glory for me? You want to glorify me? You want to make my excellency shine in your life? You want to lift up and honor my excellency? Call on me to work. Call on me to work. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose heart is whole towards him. There is no God like thee. No eye has seen a God like thee. No ear has perceived or eye seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Bell, the God, bows down. Nebo bows down. They are carried away on carts into Babylon. But God carries you. All the religions of the world have gods that need to be carried by human labor, slave labor. There's no grace, free, sovereign grace in any religion. But Christianity. Our God glorifies himself by working for us, not by our working for him. When I run my uh, jogging route down Franklin, up Cedar Avenue, across Washington Avenue, down 11th, about a two-mile thing, there's a, a foundry that I run by. They have a permanent help-wanted sign. Been there for years. Only sometimes there's a big... Diagonal red no plaster right on the front of it. No help wanted. And every time I run by it, when the red sign is up, I say, yes, this is God's sign. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. No help wanted. I'm here to help you. You come broken, empty, hungry, thirsty, weak, tired. Come to me, all you self-sufficient, and work for me, and I will pay you wages. It's not the gospel. But come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the gospel. I will flex my arms like I did at the Red Sea. 
and you will praise me for the exodus forever and ever and ever and learn to trust me for manna in the wilderness. What made God so upset about the wilderness is that they didn't get it. Murmur, murmur, murmur. You ever murmur? Philippians 2 says, put away all grumbling and questioning. And if you do, you'll shine like lights in the midst of a dark, corrupted world. Because the world is full of murmurers. And it's a rare thing to find a person whose faith in future grace is so profoundly rooted in Jesus Christ's work that come what horrible circumstances, whether it's leukemia, taking your 23-year-old boy away, like happened in our church two weeks ago, whether it's like my dad at 80 having hip surgery yesterday, whether it's like some of you in this room who walked through the most horrible divorces that you can imagine, whether it's wayward kids that are breaking your heart, no, the promises of God are totally sufficient to turn every circumstance for good so that you rest in Him and you don't have to work for Him. You know He's going to work for you. Well, how shall I wrap this up? Maybe by giving you the practical, this is the most practical thing I can think to say on all these pages here. Um, one more text and then a practical uh, suggestion. The text is, is a verse that I think kind of seals the biblical reality of what I'm saying. If, you, if you're wondering, hmm, hmm, that, sort of, that sounds sort of right, but it sounds like it might be a kind of a logical deduction from what the Bible says rather than what the Bible says. And John was kind of trying to warn us this morning against doing theology that way, I think, spinning out logical deductions instead of sticking with biblical vocabulary. So let me give you some biblical vocabulary to restate my point. It's 1 Peter 4.11, and it goes like this. Let him who serves... So now you can all relax. He believes in service, all right? But I really don't. Except in Peter's sense. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God might get the glory through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion forever. What a verse. What a verse. It's all there. Why have we been talking for 35 minutes holding back when the whole thing is in one verse? I'll say it again. Let him who serves, so let us serve. But watch it, lest you dishonor the excellency of God. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies. The giver gets the glory that God supplies so that in everything God might get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. Now, here's my practical, nitty-gritty, rubber-meets-the-road suggestion. If you've read The Supremacy of God in Preaching, you know this. It's called APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. It's an acronym, and I wrote that book about 10 years ago or so, and I said in it that I do it every time I preach. I'm now preaching for 20 years, and I do it. Every time I preach, nothing's changed, not one letter. So let me just close by telling you what APTAT is. A-P-T-A-T. -T -T. I was sitting over there beside Scott, 
bow my head, you know, two minutes, three minutes before I'm supposed to come up here, and I'm walking through Aptat, and it went like this. I just relived those minutes from about 40 minutes ago. A. Jesus, i got to go up there now. And I admit, without you, admit, A, admit. I admit, without you, I can do nothing. John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. P. Pray. Father, help me. Please give me memory. Give me liberty. Give me passion. Give me yourself. Give me light. Give me hope. Give me joy. Give me humility. Give me love. Give me fresh prophetic insights into what these folks need. You know them. I don't need them. I mean, I don't know them. I don't need them either, but I, that's not the point. Maybe that was a prophetic slip. And I don't need to give you verses for pray, do I? But call upon me in the day of trouble. And I'll deliver you, John. I'll deliver you from vanity and the love of the praise of men. Fear. T. A-P-T. Trust Him as you go up to that pulpit. We're talking future grace now. I'm almost at the end of 35 minutes of future grace, which is 33 minutes of past grace. Now, and the rest of tonight is future grace. Tomorrow will be future. If I wake up in the morning, it'll be future grace. So, but on the front end of it, it's still future. And so I trust him. And what I mean is something very specific. I mean, go into the memory bank of your mind. If you don't have a memory bank in your mind, go into the Bible and find a specific word for this moment. Take it, say it, and believe it. Say to Jesus, I believe it. You said it, I believe it. And here's the verse I used. He who believes in me, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. That's my goal. That was my, that was what God pressed on me in the last couple of days. When you get up there, may living water flow. I will do it. I will do it. Trust me. Trust me. T. Trust me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So there's a text for that point. And the last one. No, two more. A. Act. Get up there and preach, man. It won't get said if you don't say it. Go up there. Get up there. You stay sitting over there. This word's not going to get spoken. Act. Text, Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God bubbling up in you to be a river of life for the people. Work. Do it. I call you to do it. Use your will to do it. Use your mind to do it. Use your arms to do it. I know you're back there. Finally, T. Tell me what it is. Some of you read the book. But you know what it is without the book. Thank. Thank you. I'm almost ready. And I'm already doing it inside. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for letting me go 15 minutes overtime. I really am done. That's it. That, if you want to know how does John Piper attempt to serve 
in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God gets the glory, it's apt at. And if you can help me do it better, man, I am ready to get your emails because this is the goal of my life, to figure out how to exercise mind, heart, muscles, hands, eyes, intellect, so that I don't get the glory, God gets the glory. That's the goal of my life. And if you can help me, do it better. If you've seen anything in my demeanor tonight, anything in my words tonight, or anything you see on our website, or anything that you think is compromising the glory of God and calling excessive anger to me, or whatever, you will do me and God a great honor, great service. In the right way, I hope. If you let us know, let me know. He knows. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I want so much to know the secret of the Christian life. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, 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 yes, somehow now live, I live by faith. There it is in the Son of God who loved me, loved me. And gave himself for me. That's what I want, Lord. That's what I believe almost everybody in this room longs for right now. And so I just lift up a corporate longing to you as we close. May the mind of Christ come. May the mind of Christ be in us. May we be humble under that mind, oh God. May we vanish as it were. So that it's all grace. I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what we want, oh God. Do it now. Do it as we leave this place in a few minutes. I ask in Jesus' great and merciful name. Amen.